lots to cover. So let's get started. Um, so the story of the two travelers on the road to Emmaus happens between two well-known stories. So this story happens like sandwiched in between two other well-known stories in Luke 24. Jesus's, the first one is Jesus' resurrection, where the women, it says, go to the tomb, find Jesus missing, are told to wake up and realize he's not there. Uh, why, they, the, the angel of the Lord says to them, uh, why are you looking for the li- living among the dead? Um, so they're like, oh, I don't know. That seems like something I would do. Angel, why are you being like that? And so then they go back to their, uh, all the men who are still kind of gathered in this room. They tell the men what happened. Everyone thinks they're insane, um, as the text says, and, uh, except Peter. And Peter runs to the tomb and finds the, tube, the tomb empty And the story says, he is confused. Okay, then the end of Luke 24, so the other side of the the road to Emmaus story, is Jesus appearing to the disciples in the upper room. uh, Jesus uh, appears to them and asks them for something to eat. He eats with them, and he then teaches them the scriptures. And the text specifically mentions that Jesus strings together Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, And then tells the followers of Jesus, stay in the upper room and wait for some other gift from the Father. Then at the end of the chapter, like the very end, there's like this little section. Um, It's like an epilogue almost. Jesus takes the followers out to Bethany. He blesses them and he ascends to heaven to be with his Father. So Emmaus is bizarrely sandwiched in between these stories. And if you're familiar with the story of the road to Emmaus, it's a pretty famous Christian story. Uh, you can already see that these stories have a bit of a pattern to them. Uh, they have a kind of, there are these beats that each story hits in Luke 24. And this morning, I want to unpack the story of Emmaus to kind of put our finger on those beats to kind of pay attention to maybe what Luke is trying to communicate to us in Luke 24 that's deeper than just a normal like reading. Okay? So, let's take a look at the very beginning, Luke 24, let's take 13 through 25. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So, after the resurrection, this story is located after the resurrection of Jesus, We get these two people walking. They're just walking along. And they're traveling to Emmaus from Jerusalem. So they were outside Jerusalem, and they were talking about everything that had happened in the recent days. So in other words, the death of Jesus. So given the context of what we're we're dealing with here, it's safe to assume these two people people are followers of Jesus. And so this isn't too... The story doesn't like plop in here to two rando people. These people were followers of Jesus. They were interested at minimum in Jesus's multi-year movement, his grassroots campaign, teaching in the march into Jerusalem. And it's safe to assume that they thought, these two thought, Jesus would be the Messiah. And so they are walking and talking about Jesus as a failed Messiah, as we find out. They thought Jesus was dead. And so while this is happening, Jesus walks up to them. And fitting with the theme of the other stories, remember there's confusion, 
People think people are crazy. And fitting with the other stories, they don't recognize Jesus. They can't see him. Well, I mean, they can see him, but they don't recognize him. So, okay, so listen close. The text says they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Now, I've not read this anywhere. That doesn't mean that I'm a genius. It means that I did not read exhaustively everything that's written about the book of Emmaus. I just, I ran out of time. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying this as me. Um, so take this with a grain of salt. Uh, but this is the point of my entire sermon. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so the rest of my time here will be defending my point. Uh, I'm going to make a case here. I don't think it was God who kept them from recognizing Jesus. I don't think it was God doing it. I, I think we often assume that because we want to believe that. Or it's something miraculous and we think, well, I mean, it had been God, right? But if you look at the text, the women are confused. Peter is confused. And the early followers in the upper room need the scriptures explained to them to see what's going on. And this is the, but this is the only text that says they were kept from understanding. And judging by Jesus' response later on in the text, I don't think it was God playing some trick. I think it's something else that was blinding them. It was blinding everyone in Luke 24. And I submit to you, it's at work today. Let's keep going. Verse 17. He asked them, Jesus says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So the events of Jesus obviously are a kind of cataclysmic event to Jerusalem. Whatever side you were on in Jesus' movement, crucifixions were public news of the day. Um, Crucifixions were symbols of failed revolutions that kind, of, that kind of event would saturate every conversation. Like, oh, did you see those crucifixions today? Like, that was, I, I mean, I'm, I'm making, it's not funny, but it's like so-and-so's kid. Like, they would know what's going on, and, and they would know the news of the day. So these two people are like, are you serious? Where, where have you been? Are you, what's happening right now? Verse 19. What things, Jesus says, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But, he, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find the body. They came and told us that they, what they, had, that they had seen vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So this is part of the text where we get a serious insight into what's going on in the scripture. And especially what's going on with these two travelers on the road. Um, you could say a lot of things about Jesus. So in the early times, you could, I mean, these two could have said a lot of things about Jesus. Luke could have written these two people saying a lot of things about Jesus. But all of these things that they mention are choices. Okay? They're choices. He was a prophet, they say. The prophetic tradition was a Jewish tradition of people who bludgeoned the powerful and called out the corruption of the ruling class. They mentioned Jesus was a prophet. They mentioned Jesus was powerful in word and deed. In other words, Jesus had it going on. (laughs) It wasn't just some normal prophet or leader. 
this, something was happening here. This might, have been, this might be divine. And the people they blame for Jesus' death, they mention, are the chief priests and our rulers. In other words, Rome and all the corrupt Jewish leaders who have abandoned the people and the faith. And it's a huge tell about what kind of story is going on here. They say, we thought he was going to redeem Israel. You can read that as liberate us from these chains, overthrow this corrupt system, and heal the land. And they then say that they, they had heard the rumors about Jesus' body being missing, the angels and all this, and they said they were amazed by this. So the word amazed is actually existemi, existemi. It's the Greek word here. And it means to throw off, be displaced, be amazed, or be made insane. And so we can assume here that these two are radical-type Jews. Radical-type Jews. Who are like, look, everybody, the Jesus movement is dead. Stop it with the rumors and nonsense. We need to go home. We need to lick our wounds. Take a breather. Verse 25. He said to them, how foolish are you, Jesus says. And how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so Jesus says, how foolish you are. Again, a clue that this is not God blinding them. This is something else going on here that's kind of being maybe hidden from us on purpose. (laughs) They are slow to believe. um, Or a better word might be they're, they're slow to see. What is going on? Then Jesus explains the news of the day. This is fascinating to me. Jesus explains the news of the day using Moses and the prophets. Look, again, there are a lot of ways Jesus could use the Old Testament to narrate what is happening with himself and the news of what's going on in the world. But using Moses and the prophets is a signal of what kind of story we have here. It also is a clue to the kind of story that activates these two travelers. Using Moses and the prophets is a particular signal that Jesus is showing these followers. The revolution is not dead. And as they approach, verse 28, as they approach the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. It's weird. I I just find that fascinating. But they urged him strongly, hey, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. Pay attention. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, by the way, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? That would not be my first thing I would ask each other. I would say, hey, friend, did you see that? <laughs> they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Okay, so this is the incredible part of the story. It's part of the story as to why this is one of the more famous stories in all of scripture. You ask a lot of people, what's your favorite story? And they'll say this one. Um, there's a lot of just symbolism here. And if you, I think if you can see what's happening here, this story becomes even more electric. These two asked Jesus to stay with them. 
and they sit down to eat. And as they take bread and break it, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And Jesus disappears from their sight. Then they talk about the fire inside them as Jesus was talking about liberation, of revolution, using Moses and the prophets. In other words, yo, that was, that was Jesus. What happened here? Is the revolution still on? Is this, are we still, is this still going down? What's happening? But this is the thing. There's some kind of strange connection between the meal and their ability to see. Narratively, there's a connection. And I don't think it's magic. I'm not, I'm not just like making something up. I think Luke is saying something about a meal and about whatever it is that is blinding these people. And as we know, whatever it is that is blinding these early followers from understanding Jesus, understanding resurrection, and from being able to see what kind of world we live in now, there is something about a meal that reverses it. Verse 33, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two, what, the, the, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And by the way, the final note of the story is the breaking of bread. Almost Luke narratively trying to say, Hey, this isn't a joke. Pay attention to the breaking of the bread. It's important. Okay, so this is where I would normally, um, in, my, in my talks, I would normally tell you a story or show you a movie clip to break your attention span up, to help you to connect a bit more to me and to the, the text. So let's just pretend I just showed you some movie clip that was amazing, and the connections were deep, and you were like, wow, Cole, that was amazing, that was incredible. And I was like, you're welcome, and I'm here to serve. Let's just... Because I'm not going to do that. I'm not. Um, in fact, I'm going to do something a lot more boring. Um, I'm going to go into some history here. And I, I promise you this all comes together in the end. But there's just no way to unpack what is blinding these people without understanding the rabbit hole that we're about to jump into. <laughs> okay? So like Leroy Jenkins, let's do this. Okay. <laughs> like... Ten people got that joke, and I'm very excited about that. Okay. So Emmaus is known, Emmaus is known for uh, more than simply the destination of two followers of Jesus. In Judaism, Emmaus would have a completely different kind of symbolic meaning, um, narratively, politically, and religiously. And Dr. Henry Abramson of Lander College of Art and Sciences in New York and, and Henry Gournard of the Jewish Institute of Language and Humanities point to the Battle of Emmaus as not only being one of the last battles of the, Ma the Maccabean revolt, of revolt around 167 to 160, but also it is the battle of legend that is often told to solidify the heroism and tactical genius of the Jewish rebels involved in it. What am I talking about? Emmaus and the surrounding cities in the valley they are located in is a hotbed for some of the most controversial and bombastic historical moments in Jewish history. To mention that these followers were living in or at least walking to Emmaus cannot be a coincidence. He's communicating something, Luke is communicating something about these two people as we've covered, they're radicals. But we have to understand for, 
Okay, 400 years of Jewish history to really make sense of this. So we're just going to fast forward. Let's do this. So in between the Old and New Testament is roughly 400 years. So in between the Old and New Testament is roughly 400 years. The time period is basically lost on most Christians. But there are these books um, called the Book of Maccabees that tell the books of Maccabees that tell the story of one of the most significant moments in Jewish history. And bizarrely, without this knowledge, we kind of lose the richness of Emmaus. So there are eight books of Maccabees, eight. Uh, the first two books are considered canonical by the Catholic Church, and the first three books are considered canonical by the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Georgian Orthodox Church is the only one that says the f- first four books are good, but fifth through eight Maccabees, no. They are terrible. Let's not read them. It's just too much Maccabees. It's just that's it. <laughs> Proving that, that seasons one through four is a good show. Seasons five through eight, <laughs> it's just too much. It's too much. I'm too busy. The first two books are considered, again, canonical by the Catholic Church. We, though, don't have, we don't have a lot of access to them in the Protestant Church. I mean, you can read them, but we just don't have them in our Bibles. So here's the idea. In the closing chapters of the Old Testament, Persia released the Jewish people from Babylon, right? And allowed them to go back to their land and worship as they saw fit. And all they had to do, all Cyrus the Great said was like, look, pay taxes, and you get to keep your temple, your land, your religion, your culture, but you got to pay those taxes. And the Bible loves Cyrus the Great, like weirdly loves Cyrus the Great, mainly because he liberated the Jewish people from Babylon. Um, he did destroy some stuff, but ultimately he let Jerusalem be Jerusalem. But again, had to pay those taxes. So the, after the Old Testament ends, Alexander the Great ends up conquering the Persian Empire and he takes control of the city of Jerusalem. Now, if Cyrus the Great was liked, um, Alexander the Great was loved. Uh, Alexander the Great was the only conqueror in a thousand years that did not order the city of Jerusalem destroyed. Alexander the Great ruled well, according to the histories here, and the Jewish people enjoyed a time of relative autonomy, uh, minus the taxes. Still had to pay those taxes. So, then in 323 BCE, Alexander the Great dies. And all proverbial hell breaks loose at this point. His kingdom splits between two main generals. One is Seleucus. He is king over the area now known as Syria. And the other is Ptolemy, who establishes rule in Egypt. And they battle for control over Israel. Mainly because the land bridge between Egypt and Syria is Israel. And so they just battle over this. The next 30 years of history, next 30 years of war, Jerusalem changes hands five times. It goes back and forth. And the violence and the carnage ravages the land and the people. And eventually, Ptolemy's Egyptian empire wins dominion over Jerusalem for like 100 years, and there's some stability. But not to be outdone, uh, Jerusalem changes hands one last time to Syria, and they conquer Jerusalem uh, for this, the Seleucids. And Antiochus uh, the III follows Alexander the Great's program and says, we're now in charge here. We're going to give you your land back and make it a province under the kingdom. But I want those taxes. And, uh, but ultimately, you can kind of do what you want. But Antiochus does a strange thing. He removes the king from Jerusalem because he's the king, and he combines the high priest and the government leader into one role. And by doing this, 
he broke Jewish law by making the high priest in charge of the politics and the temple. And so the other thing Antiochus does is he begins spreading Greek culture all over Jerusalem. And, and many urban Jewish people, having been ravaged by war, eventually decide to just abandon Jewish past culture and adopt the Greek culture as their own, like, fine, <laughs> like, whatever you want. And they take Greek names, and they become what history calls Hellenist Jews. They even begin studying the Bible in Greek, showing the kind of cultural influence that was happening in this time. The rural areas surrounding Jerusalem are not super excited about this. They're not excited about what's happening in urban Jerusalem. They see Jerusalem as backsliding into a religious and cultural pluralism that they are not thrilled about. And the immigrants that have come now because of the empire, the immigrants that have settled into Jerusalem are bringing their idols into the city. And as, they, and as these rural people walk through the holy capital, the home of the presence of God, the temple, they see Greek gymnasiums, bathhouses, pools, and idols all over the place. And slowly, the Jerusalem gymnasium begins gathering people. There's energy. It's like the hub of life becomes around that instead of the temple. You can imagine the temple kind of losing just energy and people around it over time. Now, Antiochus III dies, and his son Antiochus IV takes over. And Antiochus IV is not interested in sharing the ground with these Jewish purists. It gets worse. He embraces wildly violent tactics against them. And so he forces the people, the the Jewish people, to assimilate to Greek life and promises death to those who refuse to agree to Greek beliefs and practice Greek faith. He believed, this was his thought, we just need to like force it violently, and they will ultimately, this will ultimately transform their hearts and minds to accept the more glorious lifestyle. It did not. The exclusion and the violence sows the seeds of its own destruction. And it set the stage for a tipping point to revolution amongst the Jewish people. So there's this priest, Mattathias, and he has this family, and they are famous in Judaism and here in America. Uh, you, you probably actually know a little about this story. You just might not have realized it. Um, they are called the Hasmoneans, uh, and they eventually get so fed up, they flee Jerusalem after all the stuff that's gone down. And they, they flee out to the rural areas. And this is important for the story of the travelers leaving Jerusalem to Emmaus. When people leave Jerusalem, they aren't just leaving to hide. They're leaving to recover, only to return later, if you catch my drift. Antiochus IV continues to go on a tirade. And he's trying to humiliate the more orthodox religious observers by making it essentially illegal to be Jewish and study Torah. And Antiochus IV doesn't stop in Jerusalem. He then expands it outside the walls and begins enforcing these laws in the surrounding countryside. And he begins publicly humiliating people who did not get in line with Greek culture. This eventually, this practice makes its way to a place called Modin, a small village where Mattathias and the Hasmoneans and his family have fled to. The town is in the same valley as Emmaus. It's all right there. And a group of soldiers stand by in in this town, this little village, and order the town to kill a pig, to sacrifice to Zeus, and then eat its flesh. Again, public humiliation of Jewish people and their religion. 
At this point, Mattathias and his sons step forward and say, no. They've had enough. They tear down the altar, they grab the soldiers, and they slaughter them. This begins the revolt, the revolution. And this also begins the story of Hanukkah. Right? So between 167 to 160 BCE, uh, so 167 years before the birth of Christ, a series of guerrilla-type skirmishes happen all throughout the countryside. There's like these battles popping up over and over and over again. And most of them are led by one of the sons of Mattathias named Judas or Judah. He is later Judah Maccabee or uh, Judas Maccabees. But Judah Maccabee, is the most fam- he's the most famous um, person in the story of Hanukkah. And the, the, his name means Judah the Hammer, which is great. Uh, the most famous battle in this battle happens in Emmaus. Judah the Hammer is the hero and main character of Hanukkah. This hero of Jewish faith took a group of untrained farmers and fought a war of beliefs and values against the military superpower of the world. And as Antiochus backed the Jews into a corner with Greek culture and way of life and violence, the Hasmoneans fought back to purify Greek culture and ways of life from Jerusalem. And the crazy thing is, the Hasmoneans win. In 164 BCE, Judah the Hammer captures Jerusalem and cleanses the temple and restores it to its former glory. Antiochus, the king of Syria, who he was a little distracted. Uh, he got a little tired of dealing with these guerrilla skirmish, skirmishes. And he, he noticed this growing threat in Turkey, um, this upstart army called the Romans. I don't know. Ever heard of them? Yeah. Uh, Judah the Hammer, at this point, takes advantage of this, takes back Jerusalem, but doesn't stop at Jerusalem. I guess hammers always see nails. Okay. Uh, he continues... He continues to expand the Jewish empire, conquering surrounding lands and expanding the borders wider and wider and wider. Eventually, the great Judah the Hammer is killed in battle. And when this happens, he has two sons, Jonathan and Simeon, and his sons take over leadership of the the new Jewish kingdom for 129 years. This all happens between the Old and New Testament. And Jerusalem gets to be so prosperous, they begin minting their own currency, they're, they're, they're a big deal. And eventually, Rome recognizes Israel as an independent Roman province. They're like, which is kind of bold. They didn't take over them yet, but they're just like, you are an independent Roman province. Congratulations. But Israel was back, baby. Like, they were flourishing. They were thriving. And in between the Old and New Testament, this is all happening. Let's fast track to Emmaus. Around 100 BCE, 100 years before the birth of Christ, in Jerusalem, under the reign as Hasmonean king John Harkonnes, a fight begins to happen between the ruling Hasmonean dynasty and this annoying group of people calling out the Hasmoneans for being unfaithful to God. That small group was called the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that the Jewish faith was more than just the temple and the Torah. They believed that there was this thing called the oral law. And this was, yes, the Torah... But there's also the interpretation of Torah. There's the Bible and there's the interpretation of it. And they root this back to Moses and the prophets. Moses, because Moses remembers a time when there was no law, right? Moses instituted the law from God. So Moses was faithful to God before there was a law. So 
it can't just be the law. And the prophets, because the prophets are an interpretation of Torah for the sake of the poor and the oppressed. They also, the Pharisees were against a combined role of high priest and king. And they were also against military expansion. As they saw that as a giant no-no to the prophetic interpretation of Torah. Oh yeah, the Hasmoneans did this thing called forced conversions. Forgot to tell you about this. When they conquered, when the Jewish kingdom would conquer surrounding lands, they forced conversions. And if you know what it means to convert to Judaism uh, at that time, especially as a male, you can see the violence and the issues here. The Pharisees were completely against forced conversions. They thought conversions should be voluntary. If you want to convert, you can. But then, as a response, thank you all for staying with me. Here we go. As a response to the Pharisees being really annoying to the Hasmonean dynasty, the Hasmoneans began to adopt the practices of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were always in a fight with the Pharisees. They were not exactly, but they were kind of ideologically opposed to each other. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and the pillars of their faith were the Torah. It needed to be read literally, and the temple was the center of all authority. This is really rough, but you get it. And now the ruling class was adopting their way of understanding the Jewish faith. And in doing this, it causes, for a lot of different reasons, but it causes a civil war. So from 93 to 76 BCE, war ravages Jerusalem and Israel again. A battle to exclude and eliminate, to exterminate the other's values and cultures was again crushing the land. And during this massive battle, nobody seems to notice that Rome is moving closer and closer to Israel until eventually Rome conquers the Jewish kingdom and establishes a Roman state. During this massive battle, er, Josephus writes, because two brothers could not get along, we lost our freedom and our liberty to Rome. And Rome brought Roman culture to Jerusalem and began taxing Jerusalem all over again. Caesar was now Lord and his image was everywhere. And the Jewish religion and way of life was marginalized and the urban and rural divide was happening again and history just starts cycling back around. So what does this have to do with Emmaus? What does this have to do with Emmaus? Well, Jesus grows up in a land that saw revolt after revolt after purity movement after purity movement and many believed Jesus was another in a long line of revolts, another who would amass an army in areas exactly like Emmaus, which was a hotbed for some of this stuff, and purify Jerusalem from the heathen Roman culture. And most of the time throughout Jesus' ministry, everyone around Jesus was trying to position him ideologically because there's histories of, of ideas that are at war with each other, and they're trying to figure out, Jesus, where do you fit? Whose side of the war are you on? What about taxes, Jesus? What about the resurrection of the dead? What about the law of Moses and the prophets? Everyone was trying to figure out what camp Jesus fit into. And Jesus was weird. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Which is like a revolutionary phrase hidden with plausible deniability. You know, like secretly what isn't God's, but you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but what's not God's, you know. So that put Jesus in, the, in this camp of revolution. That's what they would have heard. And so, okay, if he's in the camp of revolution, like Sadducees or Pharisees, is he a Sadducee? Is he a revolution? Does he want a revolution for a kind of new Hasmonean dynasty? Well, Jesus calls the Sadducees whitewashed tombs. 
and basically never really talks to them. So then the Pharisees, the Pharisees start pelting Jesus with questions. This is why they do this. Are you one of us? Uh, what, what do you think about this law? Or what do you think about this interpretation? Or what do you think about these issues? And they're trying to see where Jesus sits, asking question after question, trying to figure out, is Jesus one of us or one of them? Jesus fights and engages with the Pharisees the most, which is actually kind of a term of endearment. And while there is evidence he probably fit more into this camp, it is painfully obvious by reading the Gospels that he doesn't ever seem to identify with them completely. He had issues with the Pharisees on the grounds of their hypocrisy. They can't see the, they can't see the truth about themselves. He calls them in Matthew blind guides. They can't see. And after all this, you can make the case that of all of Jesus' critiques, of all of the parties and institutions of, of, of Israel, over the last 400 years, his biggest critique of everyone involved center around violence. The peace of Rome is the silence you hear after, after the military slaughters your town. The Sadducees gave a religious justification to a ruling dynasty that bloodied their hands with forced conversions and expansion of empire and violent revolution. And the Pharisees teach the law and the prophets while hypocritically doing nothing about the violence and poverty right in front of them. And this story of the travelers walking away from Jerusalem isn't a story about two people talking about Jesus dying for our sins and going to heaven one day. It's a story about radicals on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus trying to figure out what to do after, they, what, after what they thought was a failed revolution. These followers of Jesus are blind to not only the liberating power of the resurrection, but who the resurrected Messiah even was. So what was it? What was it that was keeping these two people blind to the identity of Jesus? violence. They were living under the traumatic effects of what 400 years of purifying the land of our enemies does to our minds and our bodies. The commentary of Luke 24 on their, on the, on their world, and I think ours as well, post-resurrection, what was blinding people from seeing the resurrected Christ was a way of being in the world that needed to be deconstructed and reconstructed in order for people's eyes to see and minds to comprehend. Purity movements don't just sow the seeds of their own destruction through violence. It dulls the senses of everyone around it. It blinds us from alternative imaginations for who we are, what kind of world we're living in, and what God is up to in the world. It gets said a lot around here. The people of God are not simply a set of beliefs, but a new way of being in the world. And I think we might have stumbled upon a symbol for this very often confusing idea. The road to Emmaus teaches us that the opposite of violence isn't peace. Peace, shalom, is, the, is everything in its proper place. The opposite of peace, to the, I think, to the Jewish mind would be chaos, order, chaos. But the opposite of violence is Eucharist. It's the holy meal, 
a meal that binds a community together. Like in the story of Emmaus, this meal, this meal opens the eyes and reconstructs the senses to an alternative way of being in the world. On the road to Emmaus, a meal heals the trauma of violence. And I'm aware that this runs the risk of sounding sentimental. But as a reminder, there is substantial evidence that these road travelers are not sentimental people. They are children of grizzled war vets. And they were ready to go and die to make their God and their families proud. But they seem to latch on to a new way of being in the world. And I submit to you that feeling of sentimentality, a meal, Eucharist, that might be the trauma of violence at work. So in conclusion, we don't gather around the table every Sunday to be charged up to go out and conquer, win, and convert. We aren't gathering around the table to be reaffirmed in what we already believe to be true so we can leave these doors and feel right and good and pure. And we aren't sitting in maddeningly uncomfortable chairs so that we can hold on to this life and get to the end and be safe with Jesus. That's an imagination birthed out of war and violence and purity. So as we come to the end of this sermon, we're going to come to the table, to the meal, under the banner of an invitation for the world to come feast with us, to taste and see that the world we live in and the God we serve is good. That means those dipping their hands into this cup will be the undesirable, the enemy, the sinner, the unclean, the impure, the gross, the unbearable, the annoying, the morally wrong, the sexually askew, the filthy rich, the dirt poor, the the unfit, the unwell, the irritating. You and me. The invitation to this table is open for you. And the practice is two things at the same time. An announcement of disloyalty to a culture of violence. And a fragile and vulnerable hope in the future of God breaking into the conflicts of our life. And remembering us back together in ways we previously could not see. We just ask, you take turns at this meal... (laughs) And leave enough for everyone to eat and remember the body and blood of Christ. Please stand with me. We're going to receive communion together at this time. And we invite everyone who calls on the name of Jesus to join together at this table. The way we receive communion this morning is to come forward row by row, starting in the front, where you come forward, take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup and receive it. When you do, they will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember, or amen. First, we're going to read the scripture from 1 Corinthians 11. When the Apostle Paul told the church this message. For I received from the Lord what I have passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. 
And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us. Burn us. Make us new from the inside out. And send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good. So that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will you come and share in this meal?